Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Christopher, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listener. Christopher Holoman is the founder of Divido, a retail finance platform that provides a point of sale finance programs for some of the world's leading enterprise merchants. You're essentially like a form of a white label platform that integrates with other e-commerce platforms so that they can offer uh, consumer financing options such as the well-known buy now pay later option at at the point of sale and i believe you've raised so far around 55 uh, million dollars did i get something uh, off all of these information i quite good no that's pretty spot on so devoter is a white label platform for buy now pay later and we license it to big retailers and to big finance organizations like hsbc and mastercard and so on amazing take us back to the founding aha moment how was divide born it was actually a number of events that sort of happened around the same time, which led to the creation of Divido. But one of the key things, I guess, was that I moved from Sweden in 2004 to London. And because I'm Swedish, I kept close to the Swedish sort of news and so on. And, and in around 2014, a small company called Klarna was starting to make some headlines. They had created this new way of offering people to spread the cost of a purchase. And because Klarna was doing so well, others were kind of looking to emulate them, and including one of my friends, he's half Swedish, half Polish. And I saw him struggle for almost two years to create like a Klarna clone because he had to raise money to lend to consumers, then he had to raise money to secure, obtain all sorts of licenses required, and then he had to go and raise capital to grow his actual platform, his actual business. And around that same time, I met the founder of a company called Pay For Later, and Pay for Later is a British company. They've now since changed name, but they did pretty much exactly what Klarna did with the one difference that instead of being the actual lender, they focused on just building the software and connecting other lenders to retailers. Again, a number of different observations, Klarna doing well, others sort of trying to muscle in on the space and then having some challenges or trying to find a gap. So it was the combination of those observations that led me to come up with the idea, which then became Divido. So yeah, that's really the founding story in a nutshell. So essentially, you're an alternative to Klarna, meaning that someone who doesn't want to use Klarna, they can use a white label solution that doesn't show the brand who's powering that. Is that correct? So for example, one of our clients is HSBC. So they would license the technology, which allows HSBC to provide a Klarna-like product or service to their business customers or their clients. Got you. Perfect. Are you currently as well a marketplace? Meaning, do you match the lenders to the, you know, the banks or you're just the two? So how it works, so the divider has two clients. Either it's the retailers that approach us or it's the bank that approaches us. And if a bank approaches us, they will white label the platform and they will give it to their retailers. So in most cases, that is not a marketplace model because they only want to lend their own money to their retailers' customers. 
But that said, different lenders, as you know, have different risk appetites. So if one lender have a very strict credit policy, they might see the benefit of leveraging our platform to refer or pass on opportunities that they themselves are not comfortable to underwrite to a, a second lender or even a third lender. So that's sort of totally in control of the client. And if you look on the retail side, it's up to the retailer which lenders and how many lenders they want to work with. There is one in the UK whose name I can't mention. They work with three different lenders and they could therefore rely on the technology from any one of those three. But they themselves wanted to partner with Divido, white label it to look and feel like their website. And they wanted to use the Divido platform to capture the application information required. And then our system allowed them to direct the flow of that application to, for example, the primary lenders. And if that lender said no, we our software would automatically forward that on to the second lender, etc. So it is not a traditional marketplace in that sense. We have two clients, it's either the retailer or it's a lender, but they can then in turn choose to create a marketplace, which we would just enable and allow them to do, but it's up to them. Amazing. So if we go back to your early days, like every startup, the brand is not known. You'd have to do much more effort to convince someone to use your product. Walk us through your early strategy or frameworks or processes that you've employed to land the early few customers to be honest we didn't actually do very much market research i mean for me it was enough to see that klarna was doing well with this proposition in sweden and as i mentioned i met this company called pay for later which were doing something very similar without them being the lender so i couldn't see any reason why there wouldn't be room for another player in this space because Surely this is only going to get bigger, especially if you think about Klarna. They were big in Sweden. The UK is a market which is six times bigger than Sweden. So I felt that the sheer existence of new players in this space that were growing was sort of significantly enough validating the theory that this could get bigger. And remember, the alternative for consumers would, in most cases, be to use a credit card. And the credit card has a lot of inherent flaws. So, for example, you have to apply for the credit card in advance, and it can take you a few days, a few weeks to get the physical card before you can start spending the money. Our system is completely paperless. It was instant. You applied for the credit the second you needed it, and it was approved right away. And most of the times, these were interest-free propositions as well. So there was no additional cost for you as a consumer to do it. So it was a pretty... I think a slam dunk in terms of gap in the market or size or potential of this of this industry. How did you land your early clients? So you have the brand, you have the product, you have the technology, the market opportunity is there. But getting that first, second, third clients, what was your early strategy? Well, we started by reaching out to a few like friendly retailers, people that we knew in the retail space. And we told them what we were working on and what we, why it was so good and how it's going to be beneficial to them. And all I wanted was for them to commit on paper a letter of intent that they would launch with us when we were ready. So that was sort of a little bit of a chicken and egg situation because if we don't have the retailers the lenders won't be interested in making the effort to partner with us, you know, enter into agreements, doing their due diligence, doing the technical heavy lifting for the integration side and so on. So we needed some at least letter of intents to get the doors open basically with the bank. And similarly, retailers wouldn't necessarily want to spend that much time with us before we had something concrete, you know, who are your lenders, what kind of finance products can you offer and so on. 
But those initial letters of intent, which, you know, were not technically legally binding, they could have changed their mind six months later. So that was a small risk, but it was enough to get the banks comfortable to meet with us. And we met with two, three in the beginning. And one of them was very keen to move ahead. They were actually working with Pay for Later. So Pay for Later had already educated them on the business model. And they've been doing business with them for a year or two, I believe. So for them, us entering this space was a, a welcomed move because they wanted to lessen their reliance on Pay for Later. So once we had that first lender on board, we could really scale up our efforts to secure actual retail customers that were signing actual contracts and not just letter of intents. But again, we were able to reference those letter of intents and saying, hey, here, here are some of the other retailers that are already working with us. And yeah, we had one bank for probably the first 100 retailers we signed up. And once we got to 100 retailers, it was a lot easier to get in front of the other banks because they realized that we were a potential good deal flow for them in terms of sending them qualified customers. How was your sales team early structured? What's the organization hierarchy? How did you structure it to land these retailers? So I think the in the beginning, it was just me and my co-founders and, and my role was on owning the sales part of it. So a lot of call calling, again, calling on favors, you know, going through my LinkedIn network. We had an investor early on called Seedcamp, which is an early stage accelerator based in London. And they invested in a couple of retailers in the same batch that we joined. So we knew them pretty well. And we were able to leverage their network to get in front of some others. And that was kind of founder-led sales is sort of the term that you probably have heard of it. It was only after we raised money that we were in a position to hire people. So we had a, initially just one salesperson. And then over time, that kind of grew to 15, 20. But that was over like a, a four-year, five-year period. What did you learn early on with few of the, let's say, approaches that failed? And how did you mitigate or change your structure or your framework of thinking around how to land the next customer? Anything you could share with our listeners who are trying to start? Yeah, I think one thing that we did is because there are competitors that were active in the space, Klarna was nowhere near as well known in the UK then as it is now. And pay for later had a little bit more traction, but we decided that it would make most sense for us to approach. We didn't want to kind of make them aware of our presence so that they would kind of actively try to compete with us. So we made a point to not approach their retailers. And instead we were approaching retailers that were currently not offering buy now pay later or which there were very many to choose from. So we did that for a good sort of three to six months. We were sort of struggling because we had to spend so much time to educate them. What is buy now, pay later? Why would consumers want to do this? Why should you pay for this? And what are the upsides that you can see as a retailer? Because we know from the statistics that retailers that offer buy now, pay later, they can increase average order value. They can increase conversion rates. They can increase customer satisfaction. But this was us telling them. So we had to convince every single person, every single business owner that this was, in fact, going to be the case. So we realized that perhaps that's a bigger challenge than we had time and money, quite frankly, you know, to take upon ourselves to educate the universe of retailers. So we kind of pivoted slightly in terms of strategy with regards to targets by going after specifically those already doing buy now, pay later and replacing or displacing the incumbent provider which might have been a Klarna or someone else. And then we found that whilst there was a little bit of a switching cost associated for them because they already had something, we didn't have to explain to them what this is, why it's good and why it's beneficial to them. So we could focus on 
the things they care about is how can we give them the same features and services for a lower fee or for a lower charge. And in the world of consumer credit, one of the most interesting and important things for retailers is that you want to have high approval rates. It's no good that you spend time, money, and effort to recruit a customer that wants to buy something from you, but they can only do it if you give them the finance, only for them to apply and be declined. That's a, a wasted lead potentially as a retailer. So they were very receptive to our message around being more cost effective and also our message around hiring, offering higher approval rates. Knowing what you know today, if you go back and you have some form of budget, would you have changed anything with your early acquisition strategy? Not really. Like we were bootstrapping in the beginning and uh, a kind of a, a not very known assets to a lot of business to business startups in London is the City Business Library. So the City of London, they have their own library. And there's one specifically, which is focusing on, on catering for business customers. And instead of buying expensive lead lists from some of big companies that anyone can Google them and buy lead lists from, we just got an access card to this business library. And we would go there sort of once a week, every other week, and basically for free access some of these expensive databases. And we could filter on location, filter on turnover, and get things like contact details, address, uh, owner details, phone numbers, emails, and so on. So that was sort of our biggest expense, which was, you know, a free asset if you don't count the salesperson. So that was probably the biggest cost that we had at the beginning. And, uh, you know, roughly sort of 5,000 per person per month, you know, all in. That's sort of the rent, the desk, you know, that they occupy, the social taxes, everything that kind of came with that. So that was our only cost. And and in the beginning, uh, once we kind of nailed our sales pitch and had good sales material, I would say that each person costing us around 5000 per month would probably sign up around five customers or five retailers per month. So it was kind of an expensive acquisition cost. You, you're looking at almost £1,000 per customers. But then we did charge them right away a setup fee, and we did sign 12-month contracts with a monthly fee. And in addition to that, when they used the platform, whenever a loan was originated, we would also get a commission from the lenders. So the lifetime value, the break-even in terms of the cost versus the profit, we could reach break-even within 12 months. And if the customer, the retail stayed on after 12 months, everything was just an upside for us at that point. Very smart. Thank you for sharing this insightful statistics. Can you share with us how your leadership style has changed from the early days where you were, you know, going out and trying to land the early clients and today? Well, I think the key is that uh, I'm much more delegating now, you know, as, as the team grew. I think the key there is that I think a lot of first time entrepreneurs make this mistake that, you know, if you want to get it done properly, things has to be done in a certain way. Uh, I'm better off doing it myself. And they can kind of get worked up or stressed out about the fact that others come up with different solutions or go about solving problems in a different way. And I think that was probably the biggest change that I had to do, you know, stepping away and being comfortable, not being in full control and being comfortable with things being done differently and the outcomes potentially being different than I would have thought they would have been if I did it. So I think moving from being a salesperson to being more of a coach, I think is the probably the biggest transition. And also in terms of my focus, once we kind of established product market fit, my job was not so much to manage that process. That could pretty much, 
grow on its own now. So I had to lift my gaze and look at the next five years. What are the next five years going to look like? And and one thing we did in the beginning, we were exclusively targeting retailers, as I mentioned. And it was only a few years into our journey that we decided to open up a platform also to financial institutions to license the software. So that was obviously kind of a, a strategic Maybe not a change, but it was certainly a broadening of the strategy. So things like that, that you don't want individual and members of the team to be running around worrying about. That's very much, you know, kind of the role that I took upon myself to have to sort of guide us with the next couple of years in mind continuously. And I should say, I stepped down as a CEO about a year and a half ago, and the business is still growing strong, and, and there's a new CEO in place and so on. So I'm not actively involved in the business today, other than in an advisory capacity. Amazing. Is there a principle that you live by that has served you well as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's probably like a few things and I keep forgetting. So I, I, I should probably write this down. <laughs> so I have, it's like on the wall maybe, so I don't forget it. But I think a key one for me that I had to remind myself quite a few times is to keep it simple. And that sounds perhaps very obvious and maybe simple as well. But what I realized is that the easier you can make it for people to understand what you're doing, the easier they will understand it and can kind of get behind it. And even if you tell someone once, they will forget. So you have to kind of repeat that message over and over again. And this is to everyone really that sort of touches the business, anything from someone that you're trying to hire, you know, someone you want to recruit uh, all the way through to your clients and your shareholders and so on. It kind of goes for all of them that you have to keep it simple. You have to repeat it and you have to be very clear in your communication. So I think that's the key, one of the key things. And I think there's probably one or two others I can think of. One is very much linked to that is around focus. Someone was telling me that no business has ever run out of business because they had too many good ideas. Businesses always run out of business because they run out of money. And that reminds me that it's important to not get distracted with maybes and what ifs and wouldn't this be cool? Because that's almost like a waste of time. You need to make sure that what you have right now is working. It's the most efficient it can be that, you know, you're iterating around where you're already standing, digging where you stand. And to be able to say no to clients, say no to feature requests and time suckers. So focus, I think, is probably the second. And, and maybe the last one is probably to not kill yourself. <laughs> We obviously only have one life and one body, one mind, one family or group of friends or whatever, and no job or no start in the, in the world is worth sacrificing any of that, not prioritizing those things. So for me, it's important that I first sort of make sure that my well-being is sort of catered for, I suppose, and then work has to fit around that. Because I think that's the only way you can sustain performance over a long period of time. You know, most businesses take sort of eight to 10 years from start to potential, hopefully an acquisition. So it's completely unsustainable to work every day as if it was your last day, because yeah, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So you just have to basically pace yourself so you don't end up getting ill or sick because of it. Amazing. One last question, Krister. What's next for you? So as I mentioned, I stepped down from my active duties at Divido a year and a half ago, and I re secured a visa to live and work in the US. I recently moved to New York, where I'm currently sitting, and I'm here to start my next Divido and something bigger and better. And my focus is going to stay in fintech, going to stay in software, but very much now transitioning into sustainable finance and looking at business finance.
that's my current project for the foreseeable future. Thank you, Christer, for being part of our show. We wish you best of luck. How can people reach you? The easiest is probably to reach out on LinkedIn and feel free to include like a personal note so I know why you want to connect. And that usually makes it easier to screen out potential appropriate connections. Thank you, Christer, and best of luck on your new venture. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.